Hello, friends, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Of Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. I'm Zach. And I'm Dan. And we do have a a guest on this podcast. Um, Dan Larson is joining us to talk about a myriad of things, but um, more intensely or focused on inspiration, perhaps. Um, now, before we jump into, you know, the more serious things or silly things, um, Dan, is this, where are you coming from again? Where are you recording? Because you're on Zoom. Yeah, so I'm in Chicago. I'm in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I was a 35-year teacher, recently retired, a devoted husband for 35 years, two wonderful adult children, mm-hmm. and uh, curious about leadership and love to talk about it. Congratulations. Well, um, you you did say Chicago, and we are talking about inspiration, right? And so uh, now I, I just need to double check to make sure this is inspiration about leader because there is a band, Chicago, and they have a song called You're the Inspiration. Uh, is it about well, that at all? <laughs> well, first, let me just put it into a context. I, you know, we've all been influenced by STEM and all this talk about science and, you know, Thomas Edison and all this. And I reject out of hand Thomas Edison's famous maxim that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Listen, I've seen many people perspire a life away and never have one ounce of leadership outside of their bodies. So I reject his maxim because for me, and maybe for some of your listeners, I might be able to help just a little bit here tonight. For me, leadership is 100% inspiration. So that's what I want to talk about. Hey, if we get to talk about uh, bands like Chicago, uh, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're in a, okay, so 100%. Uh, tonight's episode is 99, 100's next month. Uh, Usually we do a little thing with numbers here, Dan, and we'll go yeah. down one number from 100. percent We'll go 99. Does okay. does any does that number ring true to you? I know that you're a Minnesota Twins fan. I don't know if there was a number 99 in the past. <laughs> well, we're gonna party like it's 99 here tonight. But I'm just gonna tell you, to me and my family, it's 100 percent inspiration. I'm not backing backing off that number. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, um, before we jump into that, uh, recap of our last podcast, which was about mentoring, I believe that this is one that Zach brought up. So Zach, really glad you remembered that because I had already forgotten. (laughs) But if I recall, it was a decent episode where we just sort of pontificated on mentorship in our lives and mentoring other people. Is it something that happens incidentally? Do you seek it out? What's that balance look like? What makes a good mentor? We just sort of talked around the whole thing in our classic way of, you know, just talking around things. Oh, mm, wonderful description. Thank you, Zach. Um, John, would you like to take over this? Because you know, Dan... More than Zach and I do. Yes. So. And Zach and, uh, and and Alex met Dan maybe five minutes ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. During some technical issues, yeah. and we're still here together. <laughs> As Dan mentioned, uh, retired uh, high school social studies teacher from Adelaide Stevenson High School outside of Chicago, 
And Dan is also the co-founder of Citizen U. It's a website for uh, civics education, civic education that he does with uh, Andy Kaneen. Uh, he's also known for being Mr. Review. So if you look at oh, any of your YouTube channels, Mr. Review, he helps high school students to review for the AP government exam. So a longtime teacher, uh, now retired, and he has given us a, an opening statement that leadership is 100% um, inspiration and and staying with the social studies theme that's the claim you're making Dan and so whenever someone makes a claim we come up with uh, supporting evidence so f- what supporting evidence do you have either life experience things that you've read to support that claim that leadership is 100 uh, percent inspiration well I think you know uh, maybe even you know coming off from your last episode, I think there are many people who imagine that leadership is some sort of serendipity, that it happens by accident, that we just run into situations and certain people at certain times step up, and so it's unpredictable. And again, I just, I'm not, I'm not ready and willing to agree with that. And, and I can only speak on my own experiences. And I just know that I've been in many classrooms, in many environments where leadership is required and you find yourself looking around the room saying, this is dull, or this is not happening the way it should, or we've missed out on opportunities. And so then it always, it was curious to me as a young person, even in high school and college, why does there seem to be a leadership shortage? And for me, I think we've tried to make it a science that we've tried to, you know, how many books have we read on leadership? And of course, some are good, John, particularly yours. But there are so many books on leadership, so many books on leadership that that kind of imagine that, well, we can all do it if you just follow these 10 simple rules. And frankly, if it was that simple, we'd all be leaders. And so just even in my own personal life, my professional life, my life as as a father, uh, as a friend, as a neighbor, I began to explore, boy, what does it, what seems to be true of most leaders? And frankly, my, my conclusion is, They've been inspired. Something has taken a hold of them, and there's a charisma involved. Uh, there's, and, and I'll talk about how I have found inspiration because, again, be it my students in my classroom or my friends or neighbors who say, you know, Lars, I don't, why are you so inspired like that? How come I haven't caught that cold yet? And I'm more than willing to talk about how I caught that cold because, again, I wouldn't say that I've been inspired every day of my entire life. But there have been a number of moments where clearly, because of an inspired moment, uh, I've been able to participate in some wonderful opportunities. And I'd like to think that I was a leader in those in those opportunities. So talk to me about when, when you first said inspiration, my first thought was, oh, it's someone who inspires other people. But it seems you're talking more about the position of the leader themselves. They are inspired. So talk a little more about that. And if there is a difference, what what the distinction is between that and maybe the word passion that I feel like we often hear involved in the leadership conversation. Well, I think there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, But again, for me, I mean, what is a leader? For me, a leader is someone who wants to make a difference. And frankly, I can't speak for you guys, but I've worked with a lot of people that would say, I'm not in that business. You know, I I do X or I do Y. I've known teachers who, you know, come in in the morning and leave in the afternoon and and don't even understand 
the types of impact they can have with their students. I never quite understood that. I want to pretend as if everything that I do makes a difference. And that's just the way I've been inspired. And, and it certainly passion helps. Uh, but for me, I need to walk into a room and imagine that I can make that room a better place. Dan, you r- talked earlier about your story, and it sounds like inspiration has been part of your story. Maybe talk about a particular event or person that ha- has has caused you to to be inspired or to even you know, have the belief that inspiration is so key to leadership. Yeah, I, I can think of a number of moments and a number of times. It might be birth order. I was the third <laughs> uh, child in a very noisy family. And my father was noisy. My older sister was noisier. My brother, my middle, uh, my older brother uh, was noisy. And I spent a lot of my days as a young kid watching listening and wondering if I could ever have a moment where I too could be noisy. And I, you know, I look back and I, I think that I was cultivating uh, ultimately what a leader needed first, which is the ability to listen carefully and to watch with a keen awareness that you know, if we're really gonna be a leader of men and women, if we're gonna be a leader in our time, we have to understand people, we have to know them, we have to form relationships. And too often, I think leaders jump in and say, hey, I got a great idea before they begin to assess the environment, the culture in which they're working. And then it just comes off as a business or a job or a task, as opposed to, hey, we're in the same boat together. Now let's decide, you know, how how are we going to get through this? You know, you know, there are three kinds of people in my day. There are those people, you know, who want to make things happen. Right. And then there are those people who want to watch what's happening. And then there are those people who want to, you know, look back later and ask what happened. I think a leader in unique ways does all three. Right. They want to go into that room and make things happen. At the same time, they, they want to watch things happen, be willing to be vulnerable and, and watch things happen, trust people. But then leaders ultimately look back and say, OK, let's assess on what happened and let's do it better. For me, John and, and fellas, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the critical moments in my life, I can remember in college, I was a freshman in college, I joined a social group and uh, a senior in that group came up to me who I kind of admired from a distance. I won't go into those details, but a senior came up to me and she said, hey, Dan, you're new here. I said, yeah, oh, I am, thanks for noticing. And she said, hey, we've got a big event coming up in three months, a big social event. They brought, they were going to bring in a band. There's going to be a concert. And she said, uh, her name was Karen. And Karen said, Dan, I would like you to be in charge of promotion. My heart was pounding. You know, if if my cardiologist was there, he would have uh, admitted me on the spot. I was just so nervous. One, I was a freshman. She was this amazing senior and someone I admired from afar. And she said, I want you to do the promotions for this. And, and I don't, it was an out of body experience because I looked at her and I said, yes, I'll do that. And so I was thrust into a position where I had to be a leader before I even knew I was, or maybe even wanted to be. And uh, I'm telling you, I can, I, I remember those promotional spots when I stood up in front of the crowd and 
you know, had ideas about how we're going to bring the crowds in. And I introduced the band at the, at the event. It was a game changer for me. And, and so for me, when I talk to people about leadership or when I talk to my friends and colleagues and neighbors about when did it all get started, uh, I said, it all got started with the word yes. And I think leaders ultimately are risk takers and they're vulnerable and they're able to, when difficult scenarios arise, they don't shy away. They say, I'm in, count me in, I'm in. I'm yeah. I'm a yes guy. Uh, in retirement, I'm a no guy, uh, which is kind of, <laughs> it's it's an amazing feeling, right? And uh, I'm learning how to say no. And I would encourage all of you guys to learn how to say that too, because if you are a purely a yes person, it's really busy, uh, and you lose out on family time and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I, I regret some of the yeses in my life. So um, you discussed, um, I'm going to go back a little bit. You talked about assessing the environment and then leading. So, <clears throat> um, which I think, you know, I think we would all agree with, you know, trying to assess your environment before you lead, um, try to figure out what is needed perhaps and and try to figure that portion out. Um, uh, <sighs> We talk about guiding principles probably every podcast that we have. And so everybody has their own set of guiding principles. And how do you see those two things going together of assessing a situation then and then trying to implement some things or then trying to work with some people to do some things and then and then also having your own guiding principles? Like how do those intermesh? Yeah, great. I love it. Uh, first of all, I would just say that to be a leader – and you, you've got to have something to lead. You've, you've got to have ideas. And, you know, this is one of the challenges I've had as, as an educator, as a professional, is watching leaders of mine walk into a room and they claim authority just because of their title, as opposed to what they've done or as opposed to what they can do. And so for me, you know, when you, when, when you talk about assessing or walking into a room and, and displaying leadership, I mean, you have to have ideas and see, for me, this is where the inspiration comes from. For me, and again, I, I can only hope this might help one or two people listening or more because we all have different journeys. But for me, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm surprised that I was a leader because if, if you were to look at my sixth grade yearbook, my sixth grade teacher did not write leader on my homework. Uh, I, I was not that person. I was shy and more introverted and willing to watch and listen. But something that was cultivated in my life at a very early age, as the earliest memories I have, it, are three things. And I would say to everyone out there who's like, I'm kind of struggling about finding inspiration. I'm struggling about being that leader. I don't always know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't even know, you know, the shoulds and the coulds and the in the woods. And I would say there are three things that are essential for me. One is to be uh, curious. I think curiosity is one of the greatest gifts that I, I have been given. And I, I can talk about that and how I cultivate curiosity. A second thing that I think is essential to my, <clears throat> to my story is an imagination. And I don't wanna get into, uh, <laughs> into my uh, psychologist purview but I had an imaginary friend at age two, and, and, and that friend of mine is, is kind of still with me. I had an imagination. I, I would watch a television show when I was three and immediately go outside in the backyard and 
redo the whole episode in my own world. I just had a unique imagination and that has helped me immensely as a leader to imagine different ways to get things done. And we can talk more about how, how I cultivated an imagination in my life. And then so curiosity, imagination, and then another piece, which is just so essential to leadership, at least for me, was is creativity and how to cultivate that. I, I Again, my grandmother was a, a canvas painter from Denmark. My parents were very artistic and loved the arts. And creativity was just something that was modeled in my home. And again, you know, we... All of you, if you're teachers or wherever you are in your work, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, I'm not very creative? And that's just, you know, hogwash. We're all creative. We just have certain switches in our minds that we're afraid to show off our creativity. And I've never really had that switch off. It's always been on, sometimes to my detriment. But again, I would, and I'm willing to unpack all three of those words and how I cultivate curiosity, imagination, and creativity in my life. So let's go ahead and, and, and you talked about, Dan, those three ideas of curiosity, imagination, and creativity. Can you talk a little bit about, for us and our listeners who may want to improve those areas, what do we do? How do we get better at any of those or all of them together? Well, I would just say having taught for 30, you know, four years, 35 years, and served on a lot of committees and interviewed a lot of incoming prospective teachers. You know, I always, when I ask questions of a prospective teacher in my school, I only ask them about their curiosity, their imaginations and their creativity. Because for me to be an effective teacher in the 21st century, those are all three essential uh, skill sets. And so, I mean, even, even to the point where, you know, my favorite question to ask in an interview of a prospective teacher is what's your favorite cereal? And, you know, you get a lot of crazy looks. And uh, I only hired, I only suggested to hire those that I felt provided answers that showed some thought and creative, <laughs> creativity. But let's go back to creativity. So for instance, and the reason that those words are so important is because again, Think of, I mean, it's, it's like uh, when you walk into a room and there's a puzzle to solve, you, you, you have to look at the puzzle with different eyes at different times. We're all at that point where, you, you know, you think about a puzzle as a metaphor. And that's what leaders do. They help solve puzzles. And, and how many times have you sat in that room with your family or grandparents, whoever you do your puzzles with, and you, you get all the, you know, flat pieces finished. And then there's just this pause of like, I can't go any further. It's too hard. Too many different colors, too many different shapes. But then someone gets a little, some of it together. What allows that person to have the resolve to say, let's look at it differently, start moving these pieces around. And to me, that's a person who's curious. It's a person who's imaginative and it's a person who's creative. So let me talk about how I cultivate that in my own life. And I think it's simple uh, some simple tips that everyone, if you're just saying, listen, I feel like I'm in a bog. I'm, I'm just stuck. I, I'm, I'm straight-jacketed in my ideas. So, for instance, uh, curiosity. Uh, I have a voracious curiosity. And where does it come from? One, I would say I am in a, I'm a voracious consumer of information. So uh, my friends don't believe me in how much I read. I don't believe it myself, but 
uh, I just read voraciously all types of literature, magazines, newspapers, books. My librarian knows my middle name. Uh, I'm in there so often. Uh, I'm so glad for interlibrary alone because I've got books being shipped in this week from libraries in Thailand. And they're like, why are you reading a, a book in Thai? And I just say, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you should try it. So I'm a voracious reader. I love music. I find music to be one of the greatest keys to unlocking the soul. And I don't think you can be a great leader without being soul-minded. Uh, Aristotle called it, what did he call it? Mega, megalopsychia, that leaders are good souls, right? We all, you know, a lot of leadership trainings about getting your mind in order, getting your heart in order, the soul. And the soul is all about seeking betterment for your community, for your society. It's not hedonistic. It's not selfish. It's not about personal gain, which your mind and heart can be. But the soul ultimately is some, is when, when you meet someone who's got soul, you can trust them, right? Because it feels like they're doing it for the right reasons. So music to me, of all types of music, right? So my, as I'm sitting in my Super Bowl party Sunday, and my 65-year-old friends are wondering what Snoop Dogg is singing about. I had to kind of just kind of chuckle and sing the lyrics in my mind to, so he didn't know I knew them as well. I listen to all types of music intentionally. Uh, as a classroom teacher, it was an amazing strategy to get that one kid in the back of your room and that one group of four that was just like, you know, muffling their their hatred of school, and then you would drop in some lyric from a song that only he knew, and it was golden. It was golden. So, but so I'm always curious to find those keys, books, music, films, TV. I'm just, again, a consumer of culture. Uh, and so, in, in, in it's, it's, a, it's a means and an end. So that's made me curious. Uh, the internet has just been a probably a terrible thing for me because now I can answer all my questions all the time with just a Google, uh, a Google search. Uh, but it, it, uh, I've, I've never really walked into a room and, and felt bored. I'm going to say something that might be offensive to some of you guys, but as a parent, my two children would always go to school. And when kids would swear on the, on the playground, uh, curse, cuss, be profane. My kids never said a peep, even though they didn't, curse and cuss like that. And at one point, one of my son's friends said, hey, okay, how come you never get upset when I, I am profane on the uh, playground? And my son said, well, in our house, there's only one profane word. And the friend said, well, what's that? And my son said, and this is, this is actually a true story. Uh, my son said, uh, boring. Uh, my dad will not <laughs> allow us to say I'm bored. And uh, they knew if they ever used the word boring or bored in my house, uh, there was trouble. The, the belt was coming off. <laughs> uh, and even in my own classroom, my students, I would never let them say boring. And I'm, I'm going to be lucky to say, I don't think they ever said they were bored. But if they did, I would just ask them, how can you be bored? There's just so much to do. Uh, so many things to be, you know, ask about and be curious about and I would, I would model that in my room. So I would invariably, throughout the course of my career, what some students would say, go off task. 
But all of a sudden, the fly in the back of the room just became more interesting to me than the Electoral College. And so we might spend 25 minutes chasing that fly and asking ourselves, you know, what would it be like to be like a fly? But anyway, just curious about everything that I see. Uh, it makes me uh, extremely uh, knowledgeable in little amounts about a lot. Uh, and it allows me to be in a room and small talk with anybody. Um, uh, I, was, I was in a, this is a terrible story. Uh, edit this out if you like. But uh, <laughs> my colleague and I, Andy Kaneen, do a lot of, we did a lot of political work in Washington, D.C. over the years. And uh, we got snowed in one trip in Washington. It was great. So we got to be in Washington one more day. So we went up on the hill and we noticed that there was a big party in the Capitol uh, for the National Medical Association or something. Some medical uh, group was having a big bash. And um, we had suits on. We were, we were dressed up. We said, let's just go. And of course, it was invite only. You had to have a name tag. So we went up to the name tag table and uh, we said, oh, I don't see my name here. And so we wrote our names. I made up a name and wrote it on a tag and I walked in. And of course, there were members of Congress and doctors and a doctor came up to me and, and he said, uh, uh, but what do you got? What do you work on? And boy, that was that was the moment. Right. I was either going to get caught, cuffed and call home for help and bail money, or I was going to bluff my way through a surgical procedure, which thankfully I'd read a book not too uh, uh, long before that. And uh, before the night was over, there were doctors around me and I was telling story, surgical stories. Uh, and I know that may not be a story I would tell everyone, but again, because of my curiosity, it's allowed me to be in rooms and feel like I belong. And ultimately leaders are always gonna be foreigners and uh, in, in places where they don't always feel they belong, but they've got to show uh, where they are and who they're with that they're ready to do something. So anyway, curiosity, imagination is about practice. Uh, and this is something, again, that uh, too often we expect leaders to perform, but they've never practiced uh, being imaginative and coming up with ideas. And I was just lucky as a young kid that my imagination, like, I think I said earlier about the TV shows and stuff, but, uh, you know, when I picked up a Nerf basketball, I wasn't picking up a Nerf. I was Dr. J, game seven championship series and I was gonna you know finger roll I did that five minutes before this podcast I was Dr. J with a Nerf ball in my hand. <laughs> it's never just a Nerf ball my life has always been about you know fantasy of being that NFL player that NBA player uh, when my dad you know took me places in the car I sat in the back seat and I waved and every now and then he said Danny how come you're waving and I said, I'm going to my first inauguration. And I was writing an inaugural speech in the back seat. I was five. Uh, I just, that's the way I lived. I practiced uh, being in situations so that when I was in those situations, right? And we've all maybe been in those moments. If you haven't, I would encourage you to try it. I was at a, I was at a, uh, a session once. Uh, um, uh, the school sent me to some leadership conference is what it was. They sent me to a leadership conference in San Diego, and I was in a room of 700 people. And the leader at the, at the top, we had all broken down into small groups. We all kind of came back together, this big, high-profile, big-name leader, you know, mega leader. And he said, would anybody be willing to come up here and share 
what they did in their small group. I mean, you're in a room of 700 in a leadership conference of all places, uh, most of them teachers who spend their lifetime in front of people talking crickets. And I looked to my left, I looked to my right, and I jumped up on stage. They mic'd me up. And uh, uh, again, it was just one of those moments. I had practiced it before. I'd given it a I'd given a presidential inauguration speech a hundred times. Uh, so I was prepared. And so I think that imagination key is, is really important. And it starts with observing others, be very keen in your observations uh, and being willing to be vulnerable. Anyway, let me say something about creativity. Nothing for me has been better in uh, cultivating creativity than collaboration. And my first job, I uh, was in a small private school in the western suburbs of Chicago, and the principal, uh, small schools, uh, under 500. And, and the principal on the day before school started walked into my room and he said, here are four textbooks, here are the four classes you're teaching, I'll see you in June. Man, that was isolating, and I, it was a tough year. I learned a lot about myself. When I got to Stevenson, a school of 4,500, of course, you know, when he taught U.S. history, there were 12 teachers who taught U.S. history. When he taught government, there were 12 teachers that taught government. We met all the time, and I was really lucky at Stevenson to find two or three particular uh, collaborators that I worked with, uh, Jason Stacy, uh, Andrew Kinney now. And Andrew Kinney is one of my closest collaborators, and uh, life-changing, because, again, you know, we all, you know, how many times have you said, I wish I had one more arm or I wish I had another eye in the back of my head. When you collaborate, you have all that. You've got more arms, more legs, more eyes. And uh, the hard part about collaboration is to be vulnerable, is to be able to say, you know, you're right. Uh, it's hard sometimes to say, yes, I was wrong. That, that idea is better than mine. But again, with Andy, as, as a collaborator, I, I could, and I'm not going to tonight, but I could tell you stories that you would not believe that he and I, because of our creativity and the idea that we can do the possible, when everybody said you can't do that, uh, it's just been an amazing run. And I, I wish it on everyone. I wished all my colleagues, whenever I taught, I said, man, find that person that just you can run with and do great things. And frankly, that's one of the disappointments I've had as, a, as an educator is how many of my fellow teachers just felt like, mm, I don't want it. I, I'd rather just sit back. And, and again, maybe that's the difference, right? The leaders are those people that have that inspiration to feel like they want to go make a difference and do something bigger and better so that everyone, so the boat lifts for all. And for me, curiosity, imagination, and creativity is the only way I can explain it. Because again, if you ask my sixth grade teacher, she would have said, you know, we need some good sweepers and ditch diggers. Which you can be a leader in that too. So as I'm thinking through the things that you're saying, uh, one of the questions I keep coming back to is this idea of, um, you know, being a leader when others aren't. So what does it look like to say, having been an educator for so many years and just not having had the collaboration, not seeing the leadership that you would have hoped to have taken place? Um, is that something that 
you can instill in someone? Is that something that you can call to? I, you, you alluded to that earlier with this idea of just saying yes is, is a big part of, of what you're calling leadership. And so I, and I'm just thinking through that because I think a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier, just think of leadership as something that's hierarchical. It's, it's a label. You know, I'm a principal because it's my job. I'm a teacher because I have to go into a room every day and I have to talk at students. So, so what is the distinction look like in what makes people leaders versus what doesn't in the way that is it within them as an individual? Is it something that they can be called to? Is it, what, what does that look like? A great question. And I can only, again, answer from my own experience that, uh, I worked in a building that felt that everyone was a leader. And so they just needed to be tabbed and, and asked. I, I'm not a, I don't believe in that wholeheartedly, but I do believe you can help instill leadership skills and qualities, certainly. And for me, again, in addition to what we've already talked about, central and essential to my, my mission to help build leaders amongst my students and, and also amongst my colleagues is to have a really strong, clear vision. And uh, again, if your educators are out there listening, you know, whenever the principal were to come in and say, we're going to talk about our vision statement, for most schools and most people and most teachers that I've known, when you mention vision statement, all they can remember is a manila folder they haven't pulled out of their file drawer for five years. Uh, so in my building, uh, early on when I was at Stevenson and the principal and the, super, and the superintendent and my, my immediate boss department head said, hey, we're going to rewrite our vision statements. Uh, I decided with another colleague and said, you know, let's actually write something up that we would do every single day. It would be part, it would be in our DNA. We're going to redesign a vision statement so that it actually is meaningful. And, and I don't want to boast, but I think we did it. And I, I know it. I, I know it by heart. I, I, I think about it every day, even when I'm retired. Because our vision statement in the social studies was essentially this. And of course, it had to be you know, a five-page document and all that stuff. But it really was this. The, our vision statement was each and every day, uh, instill in your students uh, the ability to be a scholar, an artisan, and a citizen, period. And so every single day, every single lesson that I either taught, watched, or helped to write, or encouraged others to do, I would always ask, okay, what are we doing here today that helps the students become scholars, better readers, thinkers, uh, writers? Uh, second of all, what, what are we doing to help them become artisans? How are we, in, how are we encouraging, encouraging them to be creative, making stuff, doing something, something tactile? Thirdly, what, what are we doing in class that helps them become a better citizen, a better neighbor? Uh, and so, and then the fourth piece that I added just in my own was relevance. And so uh, whenever an administrator would come into my room and ask, and they would say, well, what question do you want us to ask when your lesson is done? I said, simple, just ask me this simple question, what for? And the for is scholar, artisan, citizen, and relevance. And if he or she observing me couldn't check off all four boxes, I would say, just don't write up a good review. Uh, when I would tell that story on open, parent open house, I could have passed a hat around and raised thousands of dollars because the parents <laughs> understood. Yeah, 
I want my son or daughter to be a better scholar. I want them to be a better artist. I want them to be a better citizen. And so it clicked for us. And that vision statement, you know, one of the, you know, sad parts when I retired two years ago is someone was saying in the office, oh, we're at that point, we got to rewrite our vision statement. And I thought to myself, boy, it's going to be a sad day when teachers around Stevenson aren't talking about scholarship, artisanship, and citizenship, because for a long time, even our students knew it. They, they understood that, that each and every day there was a vision. There was an objective that transcended content, transcended just, you know, the day-to-day drudgery of what school sometimes is. Uh, also in my own personal life. I mean, John knows some of my own vision statement in my personal life. Uh, again, each and every day that I live, uh, I think about these three words, believe, become, belong that it's very important for me to believe strongly uh, in certain principles, but then to understand that to believe those principles will require me to become something bigger and better than I am. So that's an evolutionary process that each and every day I'm on that journey to become something that can fit into that belief culture that I have. Uh, But then none of those things matter if I don't belong to something that's again, bigger than myself. And so I think about my friendships, my family, my community, uh, various groups that I'm involved with. Uh, And for me, uh, my children know that vision statement. Uh, They use it whenever they've been interviewed for a job, right? So when someone, uh, you know, a new job comes up and they get interviewed, my son talks about, you know, believing in things and becoming and belonging. And uh, it seems to work. It seems to work. So uh, there is a framework, you know, back to your question. I think there, again, some leaders are better than others. I'm just going to be honest on that. (laughs) But, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, I'm ne- I've never liked to hear someone say, well, I'm just not a leader. Uh, I said, well, you know, make a difference in, in your world, wherever that is, and see where it takes you. And, and you know, for some, you know, for some squirrels, uh, maybe they don't get to dig as many nuts as the others. But um, they're still leader. They're still leader. And we resonate a lot with what you're saying on your end. You know, we we talk all the time, as Alex mentioned earlier, about guiding principles, just the importance of being able to clearly articulate what you and those that you're in a relationship with, whether that's organizationally, whether that's positionally, however that works, to be able to say, this is what we are trying to accomplish. This is the way in which we're doing it. And this is, this is the end goal, whether it's a metric that we've specifically identified, but more than that, also the way in which we're trying to do that, the kind of people we want to be. Um, and you know, I I think a cool piece of what you said is the belonging piece as well. Just the idea that, um, it really does come down to relationships. If you have the other pieces, but you're not in, in a community where you're working alongside and especially collaborating, then, you know, what, what's going to get accomplished? Well, can I just say on that? And I don't want to be negative about people that I work with, but I knew leaders in my building who leadership was just about climbing the ladder and they lost sight of where they came from. They lost that belonging and, and they were isolated and then their leadership was ineffective. And uh, I always, I had a great principal. I had a superintendent for a number of years who would just walk the halls, walk into each uh, academic office and knew all their names. And, and frankly, he was a giant amongst leaders and it is relational. I'm a huge relational guy. Mm-hmm. 
Dan, I got a good book on laparoscopic surgery that I'll give to you if you want to bone up on <laughs> some of the latest uh, surgery. Uh, so we're, I'm interviewing for a position as a teacher, and you ask me a question, what's your favorite cereal? I'm going to give you my answer, and then I want you to, I'll be out of the room. What's the first word you say to the committee once I'm gone? You ready? <laughs> okay. I'm so ready. you asked yeah. me the question, what's your, what's, what's your favorite breakfast cereal? Is that right? Yes. And my answer is whatever's on sale. <laughs> okay, so I leave. You're with yeah. the committee. What's your response? Hire the guy or not? Well, I would say, you know, I'm intrigued because most people do have a favorite. So I'm intrigued that this fella, this guy, this, I think, what's his name? John Moyer. I think he's French. Uh, that, you know, he's adaptable. He's flexible. Uh, but he certainly is parsimonious with his cereal and also with his tongue. So I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about you. I might have to ask you about your favorite vegetable. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the second interview question, uh, call me back in for a second interview for the vegetable question. <laughs> yeah, I got a, just one last question. Then if guys, if you have anything to wrap up. Uh, so let's say you, you talk about leadership and inspiration uh, what advice would you give to a leader that is in a classroom, among a work team, where the people just seem very cynical and jaded and just closed off, and you coming in with inspiration and they look at you like, who in the heck is this guy? And and you kind of get discouraged. So what advice would you give to leaders who are really trying to do the right thing and be inspired, but their leaders, their, sorry, their, their followers just aren't having it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think my advice to them would be twofold. One, be accessible. Really work on the relational piece. Uh, I coached football for 35 years. Uh, this is another one of the hats that I had. And I, I truly was a player's coach. I really got to know my players. It was relational. Uh, I, I wanted to hear what they were thinking. So I spent a lot of time in the locker room, you know, uh, so that's one piece. Be willing to get to know the people you're leading and let them know you. Uh, be vulnerable. Uh, I said in the first 20 years of my career that successful teachers are teachers that teach what they know and teach who they are. So my students knew me. They knew my emotions. They, they saw me tear up. They saw me giggle and laugh a lot. Uh, so I was accessible in that way. And then another piece that I would share is, and this one's maybe a little bit harder, and that is just to be a good storyteller. Uh, have stories to tell. Uh, my stories, and again, I, I don't always like talking about just me, but that's what this podcast is about, I guess. But so <laughs> before every football game that I coached, so there are nine games in a season, I had a particular story I told game one. I had a particular story I, gave, I told uh, game two. And it became, it became part of the DNA of the program. And so literally athletes would come back and say, oh, week four, did you tell them the uh, you know, Napoleon story? Yep, I did. Uh, oh, week seven, did you tell them the story about Alexander the Great? Yep, I did. And, and storytelling. And I just find that in my relationships with my family, my neighbors, my friends, my professional relationships, uh, certainly in the classroom, I kind of, I kind of got a reputation of being a storyteller. Some of them were true, uh, but the ability for just people to let their guard down and realize that 
Oh, um, but you know, think about, you know, one of the, I'm just thinking about stories uh, just now, John, and, and think of that uh, moment in the American Revolution. I think they called it the Newburgh threat or something, but there was a, there was a moment late in the American Revolution where the, the officers were going to mutiny. And this, this would be the end. I mean, the, 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 the revolution would not succeed uh, if this conspiracy uh, was successful. And George Washington stands up in front of the officers and he gives this passionate speech. And then at the end of the speech, uh, he pulls, pulls out these little glasses, these you know, bent spectacles, and his hands are shaking a little bit. And he says, forgive me for putting on these spectacles, but not only has this war made me gray, but it's made me blind. And according to the historians who witnessed this, the, the officers wept. And they said, if this man's given up that for his country, so can we. And I'm telling you right now, I think Washington didn't need spectacles. Uh, he knew what he was doing. And a good leader can make a story feel really authentic when it might be canned. And I, I'm sorry if your audience finds that to be fake. But again, uh, when leadership is at stake, you've got to be willing to do what it takes to inspire the people in the room. And uh, for me, I think a good story, storytellers, you look back in history, storytellers rule the world. Well, thanks, Dan, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you, you guys. On. You're making a difference. As leaders, you're making a real difference. I really applaud your podcast, uh, go, taking your leadership outside your walls using technology. I'm a firm believer of that. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we also have a couple other thank yous, right? So, Jetler for our Sick music. Sick beats at the uh, beginning and the end. Yeah, that's right. Um, also, you can get